CBS News, NRA Chief Executive Wayne LaPierre called the president yesterday. No details on what they discussed. Police in Los Angeles County have arrested a suspect in a day-long stabbing and robbery spree through multiple communities with stops at an apartment building, a subway, and a 7-Eleven. Lieutenant Carl Whitney. I've worked here in Garden Grove for 30 years. This is the first time I've ever seen something like this where we have a suspect kill four people in one day and attack other people that just are innocent victims. Police say the 33-year-old suspect is a Hispanic man. They say all of the victims were also Latino. A new U.N. report is warning of severe food shortages from climate change. It recommends a shift to plant-based diets. Correspondent Adriana Diaz is getting reaction at a cattle ranch in Greeley, Texas. Ranchers say it's not efficient to eat less meat as a way to fight climate change. To give you some context, one study says that going vegan for a year will reduce your carbon footprint by half as much as avoiding a single flight to Europe. Still, today's report says that changing your diet can help fight global warming. But many ranchers think the cow-climate change connection is overblown. Adriana from Greeley, Kansas. New hope for a quick diagnosis for people with severe reactions to gluten. Live to CBS's Bill Rakoff. Right now, patients being tested for celiac disease have to consume gluten for several weeks before undergoing an endoscopy on a small intestine. Now, researchers have discovered an immune marker that could lead to a simple blood test and a faster diagnosis. That's thrilling news for Lisa Murphy of Chappaqua, New York, who has celiac disease along with two of her four children. It would have been great. It would have been absolutely great. would have alleviated a lot of stress and anxiety. The research published in Science Advances. Deborah? A new study from East Carolina University shows women who exercise while they're pregnant have babies who tend to perform better on motor skills tests. Researchers found the children slightly ahead in their ability to grip, jostle, and roll. S&P futures are up 10. This is CBS News. Behind every moment shared with the ones you love is a plan that helped make it happen. Learn more or find an advisor at MassMutual.com. Welcome to this guided meditation brought to you by MassMutual. Imagine taking your family on vacation. Let's begin with a deep breath. Breathe in flight delays and those times when you just can't even. Breathe out how wonderful it feels to spend time with the ones you love. (sighs) This is how it feels to have an investment plan. Learn more or find an advisor at MassMutual.com. Securities and advisory services offered through MML Investor Services, a MassMutual subsidiary. New Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline is engineered with four levels of defense against gunk, wear, corrosion, and friction. It's sort of like having ninjas protect your engine. That helps keep your engine running like new. New Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. It's fuel for thought in engines that continuously use Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. If you're trying to cool off, think twice about that fan. It's no fun dealing with an extreme heat wave. But if your solution to keeping cool is an electric fan, you may be asking for more trouble. According to a new study appearing in the Annals of Internal Medicine, fans can actually contribute to a potentially dangerous increase in a person's core temperature if outdoor conditions exceed 95 degrees. Basically, you're bombarding your body with blowing hot air that is just making you hotter and not cooler. As a result, body core temperatures soar, causing the heart to strain.
Jim Shenaby, CBS News. Getting an online car insurance quote from my buddy, the general, is a slam dunk. He's pitched everything from car insurance to chicken. Bark, 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 bark. NBA great Shaquille O'Neal has a new business venture, another affordable line of kids' shoes with Skechers. The new kicks are $52 a pair. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Here's a special message for those of you who owe the IRS at least 10000 or more in back taxes. The IRS has special programs in place that could eliminate or reduce your tax debt by thousands of dollars. With a call to National Tax Helpline, you can stop the wage garnishments, levies, and tax liens now. Once you've qualified and enrolled, the IRS will stop all the collection activities against you. These unique programs have been allocated to help the economy and significantly reduce or eliminate your tax burden. The IRS is currently accepting reduced settlements and other favorable programs, you may qualify for substantial savings. So get the help you need. If you owe the IRS 10000 or more, call now for free information and to see if you qualify. Take down the number now for the tax helpline. 800-805-1055. That's 800-805-1055 for free information. 800-805-1055. That's 800-805-1055. Alpine Heating and Cooling is a local, veteran-owned HVAC contractor providing you comfort with their best guaranteed prices, 24-7 emergency service, 10-year warranties on new systems, and free estimates. Alpine, with a Y, uses quality products from top brands like Ream and LG. Call them at 740-591-2777 or email bill at alpinehvac.com. Alpine Heating and Cooling, helping you stay cool and drop it like it's hot. When the pimp's in the crib, ma. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. Are you feeling lucky? While raising the bar in plumbing service, veteran-owned True Blue Plumbing is offering a free 50-gallon Ream hot water tank complete with free installation to one lucky winner every month. Just like and follow their Facebook page, and True Blue will contact you if you're the winner of the month. If you have questions, call 740-590-5400 or email bill at truebluplumbing.com. That's blue without an E. With a lifetime of experience and a desire to be the best in the business, True Blue is committed to being true to you. Lucas, that's another strike. Have you been practicing? I've been playing at Community Recreational Bowling every Tuesday from 4.30 to 6 at the Roller Bowl in Athens. How much does that cost? Almost nothing. For the low price of $3, I'm on the path to the PBA Tour. (laughs) PBA Tour? Let's see you try again. Ooh, right in the gutter. Community Recreational Bowling is sponsored by Integrate Athens, a division of the Athens County Board of Developmental Disabilities. At Athens Cell Phone and Electronics Repair, we repair all brands of cell phones, tablets, and computers, including iPhones and Samsung devices. Whether it's a screen or battery replacement, logic board repairs, or charge ports, Athens Cell Phone and Electronics can fix it all. Why spend a bunch of money on a new device? With over 40 years of electronic experience, we'll repair your device for a fraction of the cost. We're open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays from 8 a.m. to noon. Stop in and see us at Richland Avenue between Taco John's and McAfee's. Give us a call for a free estimate at 740-590-1677. AM 970 and 97.1 FM. Ohio. Once again, we're climbing up to a very hot 90 degrees. No mention of precipitation today, really. Although tomorrow and tonight, it's possible. 
special edition today. We want to talk about meteorology, weather, climate change, and all those things that go along with that uh, group of topics. Brian Fode, our guest this morning. He's a professor at Ohio University in the College of Arts and Sciences. And uh, Clippinger um, probably is your m- number one hangout, isn't it? I spend most of my days there, yes. There you go. Well, Ryan, I, first of all, I just um, in the last couple of weeks met uh, Florence Plasman, your new dean. And it turns out he's my next-door neighbor. Yeah, and neat guy. We had a nice social event the other night and more to go and just really neat. He's going to come in and do a show here. He doesn't know it yet, but uh, he he will hear soon. But um, anyway, College of Arts and Sciences, boy, that covers so many things, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, we have the the fine arts all the way through, um, yes, the hard sciences, and even our department geography uh, is quite diverse. We have uh, people that study population and uh, migration and development, and then you have people that study biogeography and air, lands, geomorphology, and then there are people like me that do meteorology and climate. So it's even in our department quite diverse. And, and, you know, I mean, just uh, when I think of cartography, uh, what an interesting area. But um, at least to me, you know, it's funny. It's a good thing that different topics appeal to different people. You know, otherwise it'd be pretty boring world. Absolutely. You know. Well, let's see here, Ryan Fote, F O G T, and Ryan, where do you, where do you hail from? So I'm an Ohio native. I am from the other side of the state, uh, northwest central Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take 33 and you go up. From Columbus, the other direction. Uh, my hometown is about an hour and so uh, up in that area. It's Indian Lake area between Bell Fountain and Lima. It's now, much I remember more rural. Indian Lake growing up. We would drive past it regularly because my father's hometown was in Van Wert. So we would drive to um, uh, Huntsville, probably, yeah, and get on 117 you, yeah. by Lima. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Indian Lake always looked like such a fun place. And they had a, oh, some sort of um, recreational thing there that I didn't get to enjoy too many times, but uh, it, it was a fun place, like even a little mini water park. That's right, yeah. They used to have an amusement park right near the water's edge um, back in its history and attracted a lot of people from around the state and in the region. Uh, now it has a lot of great fishing and beaches and What's really exciting about the lake is that there's a lot of islands uh, so that people live there Mm -hmm. year-round and then can boat and ice fish in the winter. But it's also a great hangout for all people from um, Toledo and and, uh, Detroit and that area, right? Absolutely, yeah. People want to do some fishing and... uh, you know, do some boating and, and skiing, and there's places that you can kayak or canoe as well, more more sheltered, quieter areas in the lake. Uh, and it's really 
all connected by these um, canals, essentially, so that people that are not even near the water's edge can still get boat access. And when I was um, between my um, high school, uh, college and then going to graduate school at Ohio State, I worked at McDonald's there, and McDonald's uh, has boat access. Uh, yes, has this docks that people would dock their boats uh, and then right. go in and, and get uh, you know their McDonald's, and then uh, they'd often feed the ducks French fries and and everything yeah. uh, there, and, and you know boat in all summer long. Well, there's a I think a KFC down in Pomeroy that has a similar setup. Yeah, it's very popular. Yeah. Well, listen, um, tell us a little bit about your family's, uh, let's say your father's background, your mom's background, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, my, my dad is a pharmacist, uh, and uh, he uh, got his degree at Ohio Northern University, and so kind of up there in northwest central Ohio. So my dad, okay, i got to stick this in here. My dad was a, a, on the board of trustees and helped... Um, with both the the law school and the pharmaceutical st- school starting it, okay, and uh, was very proud of that. Yeah, yeah. So Ohio, Ohio Northern's excellent pharmaceutical. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he. Sorry. No, that's no. He did his uh, degree there and um, owned several small small um, small town pharmacies in the mm-hmm. region. And uh, now works um, at uh, a pharmacy just off the lake, and uh, has been in the area for a long time. And so he has this reputation of just being the local pharma t- pharmacist that people know and respect. And sure. I, I worked with them um, when I was in high school in the summers at his pharmacies, and it just gave me such respect for him because I was able to see uh, how much he cared about not just you know helping people to feel better, but the people themselves. And wanting them to um, get the quickest care as possible. And there are times that he would even make uh, calls during the night to get people medicines when the pharmacy was closed. And so he just really has this respect for people's well-being and health. And then my mom, she went into education. So she worked as a school teacher for several years. And then... What uh, what, what level of teaching? Yeah, elementary like school. Elementary? Yeah, and okay. then, then um, became a librarian. And so she worked at the school library in the middle school for quite a long time and even when I was in school she was she was there and so that, that was a uh, it was fun to have my mom in the schools uh, there's sometimes that I didn't always enjoy having her there because yeah, I yeah, feel like sure. that things would always get passed to her quickly um, <laughs> you know but uh, it was it was good and uh, you know she worked there for quite a long time and now then she retired from the school library and then worked at the county library uh, after that uh, for, as a cataloger um, for the county library Sibl- siblings yeah, I'm a middle child, uh-huh. so I have an older brother and a younger brother, both who live in Columbus. All boys. Yes, all boys. Uh, so, and you know, it's it's interesting now that I'm a father of two daughters uh, to <laughs> have no experience really of growing up with girls. Even most of my cousins were were boys, and so uh, this just learning how to um, grow up with girls and have girls in your home yeah, is, sure. is an adjustment, but it's an adventure. It's cool. Yeah. Well, so. Um, what, what, what were some of the activities you took place in, let's say, during your high school years? You know, like uh, I was uh, doing showbiz stuff, you know, theater performances and things like that, and some music. Yeah. What what caught your eye? I was uh, interested. I, I did some running. I did, did uh, cross-country track for a little while mm-hmm. and enjoyed running distance, and I still do enjoy running distance. But I was more involved in the science and the music uh, through high school and middle school. And so uh, in middle school, I started uh, in bands and picked up 
an instrument and then learned several other instruments through high school and became quite diverse. And I thought at one point I wanted to go into music education as a career because I just loved music and I loved uh, playing it and even writing music and, and playing piano and performing. And uh, But then I realized if I do that, I, it wouldn't be a relaxation for me. It, would, it, would, it's, it was a hobby and something I enjoyed. And I feel if it was my career, I wouldn't find that as a way to relieve stress and to to uh, get away from you know just everyday life that that sometimes would be challenging and so I, I kept music as a hobby always and then I still? Si- still yeah I still play piano I still have several instruments at home I'm excited my daughter's in band and learning an instrument now and so it's something that I still enjoy and, and do uh, in my free time we'll talk about that more personally down the road here. okay great yeah and but science is my other thing and uh, I was involved in the science club, became science club president, you know, and was just trying to get people to understand science and, and love science. And I always had that passion and excitement for science. Yeah, but science is such back. a broad, <laughs> broad area. Now, um, how were you able to, if you enjoyed the general topics so broadly, how were you able to pare that down over the years? Yeah, uh, well, first I, my first love in science was botany and plants, mm. uh, and I just remember like wanting to know why plants were growing and why certain plants did better in other places than others, and uh, what how could we help plants to be better and, and more productive, even in, like in agriculture. And I, I loved that sort of science discipline, uh, but then I, I, I then I had a, this experience with uh, in seventh grade science of learning about weather for the first time and. I had always been one that would watch the clouds and look outside and, you know, try to see what's going to happen by looking at the cloud cover and, and knowing, right. you know, how that was changing and if it might rain or if it if it's going to be a great day just by looking at the clouds and then learning more about the cloud names and what they meant and how they, they affected different things. Uh, and so I, I that seventh grade science class and that just that week of meteorology hooked me and I wanted to uh, to study it to learn more about it and i then then from then on out it was like meteorology is my focus but what's interesting about it is that uh, my my passion for what i wanted to do with meteorology changed quite a bit even through high school Uh, i remember first telling my friends you know that i wanted to be a meteorologist in high school and they told me quite ironically that i had a face for radio and so uh, you know (laughs) here i am on radio today uh but so I think my, well, my well, they were making that link because when you think of meteorologists, you think, think of, of television, television broadcast meteorologists, okay. you know, and so okay. I was going to be on TV and they, <laughs> they, they, they didn't think that would be the right kind of career for me. And, uh, you know, I, I did some job shadowing in, in Dayton, uh, WHIO, um, sure. yeah, in, in Channel 7 there. And, uh, you know, would talk to the, the, the chief meteorologist there. And I realized that that there are aspects of that career that were really exciting, um, but it wasn't the thing that was drawing me in because I was really still connected to the science and really wanted to know more about why things were changing. Uh, and that certainly is an aspect of that career, but there's also an aspect of that career that you have to be a really good communicator and a really good storyteller and really good on camera. And there's this whole journalism side of that that um, wasn't something that appealed to me as much. And uh, so I, you know, shifted away from from that sort of focus and uh, then I thought well, I'll just work as a forecaster for the National Weather Service and going through college I took a forecasting class I actually took several and uh, it was uh, a small class we had about 10 people in that class hmm. and 
Uh, I remember my professor, uh, who was my academic advisor, and we were really good um, friends. And uh, he just told me honestly one day, he's like, "I could not write you a letter for forecasting in the National Weather Service uh, because of the ten people in the class. I was consistently in the bottom half of the forecasters. Uh, I was not really, it was not my skill." Uh, even though I liked knowing what's happening and what was going on, uh, that there was a little bit of an art to being a good forecaster. So, uh, what did he think you were good at? Well, th- yeah, he told me that you really understand the theory, you really understand the science and the physics and the math behind what's going on in weather. That you um, and, and you tend to t- teach your your peers really well at that, that you would probably be a good instructor. Mm. Uh, and, uh, he's, and he's, he's was like, well, let me see how you do research. So he hired me on as a research assistant, uh, which for me that time actually meant he, he worked actually on the side for the Mexican government as a climatologist. And for me, that meant taking all these handwritten precipitation and temperature records that were from different cities in Mexico and digitizing them, putting them in Microsoft Excel and and then analyzing them a little bit to look at patterns and change and, and anomalies, things that were really unique or rare in, in those records. And I got fascinated with climate. And so my shift went from, you know, wanting to be a broadcast meteorologist to wanting to be a forecaster to then, you know, wanting to research climate and wanting to uh, teach. And that happened later on in my college years. Uh, and it wasn't until later then that I got my, my own research focus on, in polar climate uh, later on. But it, it progressed quite a bit as I was moving through schooling and learning more. And I think that's true even now as I sit on the other side of the desk, so to speak, and I'm an instructor and I work with meteorology majors that come in. They have a similar story. They, they've loved meteorology since they were little. They've been fascinated particularly by severe weather and wanting to know why it's happening. And, and, and I think a lot of them have this inherent desire, like my father, to protect people and make people better and, and, uh, and to you know, reach out to, to beyond themselves and, and to have this you know, existential sort of uh, view for it. And, but they, 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 they realize that there's, they don't realize, I guess, coming in as a freshman or even as a sophomore, that there's so much more to meteorology than just a forecaster or what you see on TV um, and what you might read in the newspaper or get online. That there's there's a lot of interesting science that you can do with it. And uh, once they kind of realize that it's a really diverse and exciting field and there's so much change and so much growth, and compared to many other sciences, it's quite a new field that we still have a lot to learn and a lot to improve, then they get really excited. And then that's where I really find my, my passion is helping them to figure out where their talents and their abilities best align with what they can do for this world. Dr. Ryan Fode, our guest this morning, uh, he's been here at Ohio university the past 10 years. And, uh, Ryan, I'm, if you said it, I missed it, but, um, where did you go to, um, have your undergrad work? Yeah, I did it in Omaha, Nebraska at Creighton University. Uh, they don't have a meteorology program anymore. It's now an earth sciences program or environmental sciences program. But they did when you did. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a nice small one. And I, and I chose that university for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I wanted to get out of Ohio and experience something different. And uh, so I knew I was going to go out of state. Uh, and so it wasn't like really a matter of how far away or how close to home I was. Uh, but also, I wasn't really sure, you know, even... 100% going into college, what I wanted to do. And, 
uh, with meteorology. I knew I wanted to do meteorology, um, and I thought I wanted to be a forecaster. Uh, and so that, that school had a lot of opportunity. It was in a big city, so I could do broadcast again if I wanted to. Uh, but it was also in an agricultural area, so they had a lot of ties to the private sector of meteorology, working with ConAgra and uh, insurance companies that would insure meteorologists or insure farmers, um, sorry, that would help to understand more about the impacts of loss on crops and, and those sorts of things. And so I, I thought that was interesting. And then right across the river was off at Air Force Base. And so I thought if I wanted to go into a military uh, Air Force weather agency kind of career, that was that was an option. And then down the road was the National Weather Service office in, in Valley, Nebraska. And so I had all these options. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that all those things that I thought were going to be great options for me, I chose none of them in the yeah, end, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a really good s- small school, um, you know. And So then out of that, uh, you, you decided you needed to pursue an advanced degree. Yes. And so what were your choices then? Yeah, well, I, I knew I wanted to do climate, and I talked a lot with my advisor, who I had the, the most respect for, and uh, I was, you know, thinking about what kind of things did I want to do with climate, and I, I didn't want to, I wanted to do something a little bit different and and more exciting than perhaps, uh, than just working on, like, U.S. climate and uh, even stuff that, you know, would be... Um, you know, Northern Hemisphere, and I uh, started brainstorming, and he gave me this book on glaciology. And so it's my first exposure uh, to understanding ice and what happens with ice and how ice is connected to the atmosphere and to the ocean. And uh, I was really fascinated by that. And so I, I said, what can I do to pursue a study of ice and climate? And uh, he's like, well, you could do a polar climate focus. And, uh, and so he started saying these are the schools that really do a lot with polar climate and you should apply to all of them and then see what happens. And so, yeah, I applied to places like the university of Alaska Fairbanks. I applied to university of Washington. I applied to uh, Colorado state and I also applied to Ohio state and Ohio state of all of those, uh, you know, gave me the best uh, financial package, but also has a really, really great polar program. Uh, They have what's now called the Bird Polar Research and Climate Center, and uh, they have focus in both the Arctic and the Antarctic, and so a lot of really exciting polar science. Gulfwaite. Yes. Do you know that name? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, I I don't know. uh, This was someone I went to high school with. His father was... The Gulfwaite, you know, who is so well known for his polar stuff. Yes. Antarctica and all of that. Yeah. He was um, a a leader in a lot of different areas of polar science. And um, they have a polar medal now that they give out every year in honor of him. Uh, And so it was was definitely an inspiration to a lot of, of polar science. Spent a lot of time in that home. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go. On. I'm sorry to interrupt. No. Yeah. So I mean, then yeah, I was at Ohio <laughs> State, and uh, you know, got connected right away uh, with the Bird Polar Research Center, and spent six years of my life there as a research scientist, a graduate student. Uh, and during that time, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to deploy to Antarctica three times, and so I was able to go down to Antarctica and experience the Antarctic environment. And that my first trip down there is what really set that for me for my career. Okay, this is really a stupid question, but I'm going to lay her out there anyway. Okay, you've been both to North and South Poles. Nope, just to the South. Oh. Yep. 
Really? Yeah. So I don't. I, don't I actually, have misunderstood this. Yeah. So I don't study any Ant- or the Arctic climate at all. Uh, so, in, in a, the polar community, we we call it being bipolar. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I always probably tell people that I at least in the research sense I'm not bipolar. So I, I just do Antarctic research. And so I've been down to South Pole, but I have not been to any of the Arctic, even Alaska. Well, well, doesn't that drive you nuts? I mean, how you know? Don't you want to see how similar they are? Oh, I think they're quite. They're more different uh, than. Well, they that's are. what I mean. Just, Everyone would yeah. assume. Yeah, I, I. There's a lot of a lot of U.S. scientists that do Arctic research, and so I like to set myself out a little bit okay. more to be one of the unique people that do the Antarctic research. Uh, and uh, I, I haven't caught the Arctic bug yet. I, I may, somewhere down the line, want to study more of Arctic climate. And certainly, you know, I have to keep up with the literature on the Arctic climate because th- there, there are things that are connected to what's going on in Antarctica, and uh, there's, you know, a lot of change in both regions. But, uh, yeah, I really am fascinated with the Antarctic, and there's so much that we need to learn yet uh, about the Antarctic that I haven't found the need to uh, do more. So let's um, let's bring it home a bit. Um, Ohio University has and has had for many years a, a thing called Scalia Lab. Uh, folks, it is uh, last I knew anyway atop of Clippinger Hall. Is it still? It is. It's okay. the fourth floor of Clippinger. Yes. And Clippinger's undergoing a nice uh, renovation. So they're they're building a new chemistry building uh, right out front of the existing Clippinger building. Uh, that's been uh, ongoing all year, and it's exciting to see more of that coming in. And then I do believe the plans are for the existing Clippinger lab, once that building is in place, to also get a renovation. Right. Now, uh, Scalia, um, for years I've heard about Scalia. Now, is it unique? Uh, and what do I mean uh, by that? Is Somehow or other, I was led to believe that not a whole lot of colleges or universities have such a thing. Well, yeah, even meteorology programs are quite rare. Uh, There are are probably less than, I would say, 75 universities across the U.S. that have a meteorology degree. Wow. Uh, So it's, you know, there are really in the state of Ohio, it's just us in Ohio State that have a, a, a degree that you can get a bachelor's degree uh, at the undergraduate level. And so it's it's not every university to begin with. And then once you get beyond that, not all those meteorology programs have a dedicated forecasting lab. Mm-hmm. They will have forecasting classes that students do, but they won't have a lab necessarily where the students are issuing those forecasts online for everyone to see and read. Uh, and so this community aspect, this orientation of a class with the community is a unique thing once you get into the smaller meteorology programs. Now, over the years, there's been times when we've had, I suppose, students um, regularly provide us with forecasts. Uh, sort of go. There is an ebb and flow to it in the sense that sometimes you got enough in, that are interested in doing it, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Uh, we also use uh, Channel Thirteen. What is that? W, W-O-W-K, Scott? Yes. Yep. I caught him with a mouthful of... Uh, what are you eating back there? Um, my and Opie's favorite. Oh, okay. Uh, Pop-Tarts. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, 
Um, and and the, it's very helpful. Um, and I do think, of course, when Scalia did it, they would also include points of interest for that was going on right here. Yes. Like today's fair day, you know, and tonight we have the tractor pull. No, no, no. Tonight's the, um, what do you call it, demolition derby stuff. So they could include points of local interest as well as the weather. Yes. Um, I, I, I just think Scalia Lab is really cool. You know, I've often wondered, um, I, several times I've gone and searched on my cell phone, you know, everybody has become a meteorologist now, right? Yes. It used to be because they have all these apps that you can put right on your phone and then you can see yeah, all this stuff. And some people understand it well and some don't, but they pretend to. Um, does Scalia have an app? So that's a good question. Uh, Right now, we do not have a standalone app that uh, you download from an app store and and use on your phone. However, uh, this last year, uh, our website got a new redesign. uh, Thanks to our friends here in town, Redtail Design. Sure. Uh, They uh, made an elegant layout that uh, includes all of our forecast products and our data. And what's exciting about that in particular is that it's mobile-friendly. So before, our website was just the standard website design and to, to read it on a phone with a much smaller screen, it was really hard to get the content. You had to zoom in and it was just a little bit tedious. Now everything is sized uh, so that you can read the forecast. You can read uh, the current weather. You can read um, some de- details about some upcoming things uh, on your phone much more easily. And so it's not an app that will send you notifications or alerts if there's oncoming weather, but uh, it's a, a really mobile-friendly website that allows the users to get the information they need uh, at their fingertips and, and have that there on the website. We are talking about developing a web app, uh, or, uh, an iPhone app or an, an Android app that would allow users to access that information. Uh, there's there's some challenges and some uh, obstacles with that. Um, in particular, uh, there, like you said, people already kind of have their app that they use, uh, and for better or for worse, uh, you know th- that's where their go-to is. It might be just the default weather app on their phone, or it might be something that they've been using for quite a long time. So to get people to uh, switch over to uh, an app that we might provide might be uh, a challenge. Um, and then also just just what kind of information would we want to to convey? And so in in the meantime, where we don't have this app interface, uh, we have social media accounts that we use to uh, update more real time weather events. Uh, we have a Facebook page that is more for like the the outlooks and for you know forecasts for specific events or days. Uh, where there, there, there's a lot more public interest. But then we have a Twitter uh, feed that is really important for breaking weather, mm-hmm. especially if there's severe weather alerts or warnings, um, that we will update that as frequently as possible uh, to give people information that would help them make decisions as the weather is unfolding. I assume these are all coordinated and interfaced with our county systems and um all of that sort of thing. So we we have been working a lot more with the emergency management personnel in the county, and we've had students intern uh, from our lab with the emergency management so we can establish a really strong relationship with them. And, of course, across campus, uh, Jill Harris, the emergency manager for Ohio University, 
uh, knows our lab very well, and you know um, they have a means of getting their weather information. But they will often, if it's going to be something that's going to impact operations, will will talk to us to make sure that these things are, are true. Like if it's going to be cold enough for school delays or cancellations, uh, or if there's going to be like the chance that we might go to a level three where the university would close. They mm-hmm. would often uh, reach out to the lab to confirm that that forecast is accurate or how long it might last for. And so we definitely have this connection with the community as well. Um, to help, uh, you know, get get local information. And I think that's one service that the lab provides really well. When you have these weather apps or you even go to the weather service or other places to get your weather information, the extra service that we provide beyond that is that we provide a local tailored forecast. We are looking at Athens City or Athens County, uh, whereas these forecast companies or the, the apps or the weather service even are, are for a much larger region. They can't give you that detail. They can't give you that specific information that you might want here in town. And we have our own you know, weather data that we collect and, and, and use uh, here from our weather tower. And so it's really a local forecast for this local community. Uh, that's that's quite different than you're going to get from uh, a large-scale weather app or even the National Weather Service. And I assume it uh, uses sources from uh, NOAA, that's the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. That's correct. Yeah. And and other sources, too, to pull this information and then present it as it pertains to our region. Yes, and what's what's nice is that you know we're we're using the same sort of forecast models that these companies are going to use to help generate their forecast to help you know, understand them. But we have the local knowledge, we have the understanding of when the models don't do well uh, in this region because of not picking up certain features of the terrain or not understanding you know the 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 importance of the trees or or uh, different ways the snow feeds back to the temperatures here and the, the nighttime lows or the daytime highs. Uh, and so this local knowledge that we teach in our classes, and then we can have the students incorporate uh, to add skill and, and knowledge to the, the, these models uh, mm-hmm. gives it that local flair, that gives it that local vibe that we wouldn't have from, you know, these, again, National Web Service or large-scale apps. So <clears throat> um, if there's 75 universities only that are um, working at this kind of level of weather and atmosphere and climate and that sort of thing. Um, Ohio University must be very proud that it's one of them, right? Yeah, and I'd argue that we are one of the best ones for the undergraduate education. Uh, we we uh, have a really strong tie with the Scripps School of Journalism, and so we have a really great uh, connection with WOUB and broadcast meteorology, and we're now we just launched this year a broadcast meteorology degree, and so students combine the, the the great world of journalism with our meteorology curriculum and get that degree. Uh, we're one of the few, if maybe the uh, only one at the undergraduate level that would offer that degree, uh, and so that's really exciting. Uh, and then we're also an award-winning uh, program. Our student chapter of the American Meteorological Society, which is like our meteorology club, uh, just this last, just recently, we were announced that we were the chapter of the year again at the national level. Uh, so this is all across the meteorology programs, all these student chapters. Uh, this is the second time that our student chapter has won that award, uh, being the best, most outstanding student chapter of the American Meteorological Society. And so just as an attestment to how dedicated these students are to uh, what they're doing, how invested they are in the community and, and 
outreach and education and uh, public service and uh, what we're doing uh, to make campus better in terms of its preparedness and understanding of weather threats. So it's really exciting. And so I think all these things give us, give us an edge uh, in many ways uh, that help us to make, a, make our program really great. Um, this is kind of lame, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so do you have a feather, uh, a feather, a favorite, uh, weather app? I can tell you, I used to have one. It was called IntelliCast. Yes. But it disappeared. Yes. And they changed to a thing called Storm. And then there was another thing too, but, um, it's not nearly as good as it once was. Yeah. Now, what's your favorite? So I really use one primarily, um, which is, and it's not even a, a forecasting weather app. Um, I, for my forecast, you know, I'll go to Skylab um, and, and look at the, what the students are doing and what, what my, my staff is doing. But, uh, you know, for, for the, the best weather information uh, in terms of rain and snow and those threats, radar scope is, is the best. It's the standard used by all meteorologists and, and storm chasers. Uh, it's not free. Uh, there are various levels that you can purchase. The the lowest one, I think, when I bought at least was, was $10. Uh, but it provides you with the highest resolution, uh, up-to-date radar, uh, so that you can zoom in and get information about where the heaviest rain is, where you can look at the velocity uh, parameters and look at where the, the tornado might be if you're, you're out storm chasing, uh, or where the hail core might be if you, you want to avoid the hail. Uh, and so it's really high resolution, really great data um, that I think almost all meteorologists use and it'll overlay watches and warnings and, and even advisories and, and in some cases. And so it allows you to see a, a bit of, uh, you know, a lot more information than you'd get from looking at the national weather service radar, for example. I'll check it out. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's addictive. So it's a, that's just the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see here. Um, in, in terms of uh, promoting Scalia lab, and then I want to move on to the uh, polar stuff. But um, it, it, um, once again, if someone simply wants to look at it, I think they'll understand how valuable it can be and they'll continue to use it. So to get there, yeah, how? So our website is scialab.com, www.scialab.com. So it's not an OU site, it's scialab.com. Yes. Yeah, we are standalone. Uh, we, are, we, ha- we have links back to the university, and you can actually go to the Ohio main page, and if you click on weather, uh, it'll drink, direct you to the Scialab site that way too, uh, or the, even the College of Arts and Sciences directly links to our, our site. Um, right. So it's not an OU site. Uh, it is uh, a separate site, uh, so that that, that just keeps the the legacy of the lab uh, going there. Uh, if you want to, if you uh, can't access internet for whatever reason, you can call in to our phone hotlines. We still operate that uh, for your forecast. That's, just a recorded forecast. Uh, yeah, it? so that's updated at least twice a day. Our, our forecasts are done every day of the year, New Year's Day through New Year's Eve, uh, twice a day at least, um, even on weekends and, and Christmas Day, all these times. Um, during the school year, we'll have three, maybe four forecasts a day uh, that are different student forecasters. You can find your favorite forecaster if you want um, and, and follow them more often. But uh, yeah, the, the phone hotline is 740-593-1717. And that'll be updated in the mornings and, and if nothing else, again, in the evenings. 
You uh, know, that's been that same phone number for years. Absolutely. Yeah, and we have a, a base of people that we're so f- thankful for that continue mm-hmm. to call in uh, and to use that as a means of getting their weather information every day. And uh, we know that because if sometimes a, a student happens to sleep in a little bit and miss their <laughs> morning forecast, you hear about we'll, it. We'll, uh, and uh, we're thankful to, to the department administrator that has to often deal with those phone yeah. calls because they'll call the department uh, and uh, then they'll forward them on to me. But, um, you know, we'll hear about it if, if it's not uh, accessible for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, those that, problems never happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we are st- we are a student-centered uh, laboratory. Uh, I'll occasionally get on and make some forecasts, and we have a graduate student that oversees a lot of the staff. But uh, you know, we uh, we are student. The, the, most of the forecasts are issued by students, and so you know, uh, on a Saturday morning at eight a.m. or seven a.m., uh, you know, they even though they know their shift in advance, they might be a little tardy sometimes getting up that early. Uh, and so uh, it, it is, uh, yeah, a learning it is process it for is. them. You yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's this, this, this go a little different direction here now. Um, so we have the term weather. And I think everybody gets that. Uh, we have the term forecasting. Uh, I think everybody gets that. It's a prediction of what the weather will be. Now, um, meteorology. Give me a short definition. I think, hmm, that's a a good question. Uh, I think meteorology is a blend of the science of the atmosphere. Okay. So it's, it's not just, you know, the forecasting and what's happening now. It's understanding the why and the how of what's going on. Now, climate. The word climate. What Does it have any distinction between any of those things? Yes. Uh, so, and this is the challenge, even with people understanding climate change now. Climate is not about what's happening today and what's happening tomorrow at least not in terms of an exact number. It's, it's the long-term behavior. It's uh, the change it's, uh, it, or, or the frequency, the shifts in frequency, how often things occur. Uh, it's how unique or how rare certain things are, how excessively warm or excessively cold it was. It's not, it was this, it was 90 degrees like it might get today. It was, it was how much warmer is that than what we consider average or normal. Uh, that's what climate is. It's, 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 comparison to a much longer history that provides context for uh, understanding changes in uh, frequency or intensity of events. So when they talk about um, climate change, and generally the word in front is worldwide climate change, uh, golly, they they bring in so many different things, uh, like deforestation um suddenly i'm at a a standstill here yeah but help me out a little bit uh these different changes in how we take care of our world sure which then uh have a ripple effect on other things right absolutely yeah so Climate is connected to every 
aspect of of this world and from you know what plants would grow in certain regions to what species would live there to um, you know how much rain it might happen or uh, the change in the jet stream to uh, the ocean circulation and not only the ocean currents but the deep ocean circulation and where does water sink to the ocean floor and how does that resurface in, in different places across the planet uh, to the ice on the planet and the snow cover. Uh, all these things are intertwined and interconnected. And so climate really under- wants to understand all of those things. And you have people like me that are more like the physical climate scientists that look at changes in the atmosphere in particular and want to know why it's changing, how it's changing, and how, how it will change in the future. And then you have people that look at the ocean or the ice uh, in particular, uh, or then look at the impacts, like how species are changing or adapting adapting to the changes in the climate and the environment or how uh, people are adapting and changing, you know, the social aspects, you know, food production or, you know, water reliability or scarcity, uh, the quality of water, uh, even the frequency of rains or floods. Uh, So all these different areas that are intertwined because it's not just how warm or cold it's going to be. It's what are the, what, what does that mean? What, how does that impact me? How does that influence me? Uh, from what I eat to what I wear to, um, you know, w- what kind of uh, species or plants or animals might be around uh, in that, that environment. Now, you have, um, in addition to the general topics, you have added this Antarctica research component to it. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm and there are some who are um, studying the Arctic fat. That's right. The difference, folks, just in case, Arctic is North Pole, Antarctic is South Pole. Yeah. Okay. Now, <clears throat> that's a long ways away. Absolutely. It's an entirely different atmosphere. Um, what are your observations when you go to Antarctica and, and compare them with what you knew of the past or what you've been told of the past? Yeah, well, I'll first draw contrasts between the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, One of the biggest reasons why there's different changes in those two regions is geography. Uh, The Arctic is an ocean uh, around the North Pole uh, that's surrounded by land. And so the ocean, of course, is right near sea uh, sea level and it's not high elevation and it can move, the ice can float around it. And so you have this, this just really different environment. The Antarctic is land that's covered by ice uh, that's over two miles thick at the South Pole. And uh, it's, it's, so it's a, a land at the South Pole that's very high in elevation. And then it's surrounded by the globally continuous Southern Ocean. It's the only ocean that uh, can, you can go all the way across from one line of latitude at 60 degrees south and it continue on and not run into land. And so it's, it's a completely different environment. And that completely different environment drives completely different changes in, in climate uh, at just the very beginning. And so scientists knew a long time before we were even seeing these changes happening that the changes that we're going to see in climate are going to be first observed and detectable in the Arctic uh, because of the fact that it's an ocean at the North Pole uh, that has ice on it. And there are going to be these feedbacks, these, these changes, these connections, these loops that are going to exist in the Arctic that are going to make the change more marked, more rapid, and more defined in the Arctic first. And then we'll see it emerge in, in the other places across the planet. 
And so when you hear the time, the, the term global climate change or global warming, uh, you can look at global average temperatures and see, yes, on average across the whole planet, temperatures have been going up over the last century, especially over the last 50 years. But when you look at it closer, you'll see that the most rapid change in temperature uh, over the largest over a large region would be in the Arctic. And so poleward of 60 degrees north latitude, once you get, you know, above the Arctic Circle, uh, you're seeing the most rapid change and uh, really a strong warming across all seasons. Uh, and it's related to the fact that there's changes in the ocean, the atmosphere and the ice there that are all connected and that all amplify the rate of the, the response. And so once you start to melt ice, you leave more ocean open. Uh, that in turn absorbs more sunlight uh, than the ice would reflect and it warms the ocean that then feeds back to the atmosphere and later on warms the atmosphere and it creates this continued feedback loop that accelerates the rate of warming going on in the Arctic. And so we're seeing much more dramatic warming in the Arctic right now than we are uh, on the global average. That's quite different than the Antarctic. So the Antarctic... Um, because of the fact that it's an ocean uh, surrounding the Antarctic ice sheet uh, is a little more isolated. And uh, there are places of Antarctica that are not warming rapidly, uh, that are relatively stable in terms of their temperature. And then there are certain hot spots of Antarctica due to unique regional circulations in the atmosphere and the ocean that are warming quite dramatically as well. But it's a lot different. The, the Arctic overall is warming everywhere. Uh, and the Antarctic is only having a few hot spots right now. So the most change we're seeing is at the North Pole. Right now. And, you know, they talk about global warming and it, the consequences it can have. And it's kind of scary. Um, but this is something we're talking about over quite a long period of time. Uh, well, I mean, certainly it, it all depends on... So historically, the, the most rapid changes have been in the last 50 years. And that's when we can detect the, the human fo uh, footprint on climate change. We can see that the, the rate of change and how fast it's been going is not uh, likely attributable to natural causes alone. So that uh, human contributions through greenhouse gas increases are playing a, a leading role in that rapid change. But into the future, then what looks like it depends on really what happens in terms of our emissions of greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, leading scientists uh, that are involved in, in policy and, and the, at the forefront of this discipline, you know, suggest that if we want to avoid a world where we're not one and a half degrees Celsius warmer than what we've been uh, in pre-industrial times, that we need to act now. Uh, and at one and a half degrees Celsius, certain things emerge that change and, and rapidly uh, influence the way the world works and, and, and the way that species live and food is produced. Uh, and then even more of those at two degrees Celsius warming. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of people that, um, well, well, of course, the most, the most often topic when you come and see someone is uh, the weather. Yeah. Right. Just in casual conversation. You know, this has been an unusual summer here. Uh, heat, rain. Um, do you think that's all the result of climate change, or is it just the way this year is? 
there are components of this year that can be tied and attributed to climate change, for sure. Um, but a lot of things happen just because of natural variability as well. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at the overall trends of this year in, in context of uh, previous summers, you, you will see even across the state of Ohio that there is a warming trend. And so there's a shift in the frequency or the mean state of uh, warm events that you'll see more uh, frequent heat spells. You'll see uh, a shift to more 90-degree days uh, across the state of Ohio and really across all of the U.S. And there's that, that gradual uh, period uh, that, that happens with climate change. But, um, you know, a 95-degree day, part of that 95-degree day could be due to just the way that the, the weather patterns are working with the jet stream and Gulf moisture coming up from the south and making it more humid and, and that retaining more heat at night, uh, to that natural variability that could happen on any given day, uh, combined with this long-term trend of this shift towards warmer climate to warmer uh, conditions. So there's this, there's it's both. It's not either or. It's not just natural variability or just climate change by itself. It's this combination of a change in the mean state with these ups and downs that come with the weather events. So you're doing real well. What, uh, what, what dream do you have yet to work on? I, um, my current project right now is understanding Antarctic sea ice. And Do, what was it? A Antarctic sea ice. Sea ice. Okay. Yes. So this is uh, ice that floats on the ocean around Antarctica. And now, Okay, salt water, you know, we always say you throw salt on the ice and it'll melt. Yes. Uh, salt water has to have, to be frozen, it's unusual anyway. So yeah. it has to have a higher degree of temp of coldness, right? Yes, it's it'll freeze at temperatures below zero degrees centigrade, thirty okay. two Fahrenheit. Uh, but when it freezes, it it rejects the salt. So the 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 the, the ice is you know pure. It's not, it doesn't have salt in it. Didn't so, know that. Yeah. So it changes the ocean circulation because of that. It, it uh, puts ocean uh, puts salt into the ocean, and that salt water is denser, heavier, uh, and so that sinks to the bottom often. And so Antarctic is really important because the formation of ice year-round, uh, and especially in the winter season, puts more salt, and it's one of the few places in the planet where water can sink to the ocean floor because of that cold, salty water that's formed during sea ice production. Uh, it sinks to the, the ocean bottom, and it's what we call Antarctic bottom water, and it plays a very important role for the, the global transport of heat through the ocean. Uh, and so understanding how that might change is really important, and, but also understanding how uh, sea ice is related to the climate of Antarctica is very important. Uh, some of the largest warming trends that we've seen in Antarctica are in the Antarctic Peninsula region, and it's been tied to sea ice loss. There's been less uh, ice near the Antarctic Peninsula, especially on its western side, and with less ice, it means more open ocean and more warming. And so there's this connection of climate uh, to the ice conditions that we don't know very well uh, because we only can measure sea ice from satellites. And satellites uh, over Antarctica really only started in 1979. So we have a very short record of what sea ice conditions are normally like and how they change. And so my current project is to understand how has sea ice changed over the 20th century? What does it look like going back to 1905? And how unique are these changes now? 
Ryan Fode, I appreciate you coming by. I hope you'll come back periodically and update us and, um, sh- you know, share with us your observations, right? Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Folks, it's, um, let's see, just a few ticks away from 10 o'clock. You'll hear the tone, and that'll be it. We'll see you tomorrow with a free-for-all. This is CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by Capital One. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. There's new insight into the suspect in the El Paso Walmart massacre. CBS's Janet Shamlian says his mother had called police weeks before the shootings. The family's attorney, Chris Ayers, told us Lori Crucius had, quote, absolutely no fear of violence nor any belief of an intent to do harm. Instead, she was concerned about her 21-year-old son owning an assault-style rifle due to his age and lack of experience with that type of firearm. Crucius, a white supremacist, is charged with capital murder. President Trump and Senate leaders are under increasing pressure to pass stricter gun control laws. CBS News has learned Mr. Trump got a phone call from the NRA's Wayne LaPierre yesterday. No details on their discussion. A Georgia man is facing charges of making threats against a baseball stadium. A former worker at the Atlanta Braves stadium is accused of threatening to shoot people and, quote, blow up the place. 30-year-old Jamar Antonio Golfin was a temporary worker cleaning a seating area of SunTrust Park. Police say he made the threatening comments after being asked to leave the park after an argument with his boss. The baseball team says the man no longer works for the third-party vendor the Braves use for cleaning services. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Immigration officials are calling it the largest single state enforcement operation in U.S. history. 680 workers were arrested at seven food processes processing plants in Mississippi. CBS's Omar Villafranca. Several hundred agents surrounded the perimeters of the food processing centers to prevent people from leaving. And then after the operation, U.S. Attorney Michael Hurst issued a stark warning to businesses, comply with the law or we're coming after you. The raids had apparently been planned for more than a year. A new U.N. report is urging a shift from meat to plant-based diets to minimize severe food shortages in the future. Dr. Ho Sung Lee chairs the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Land is where we live, and land is part of the solution, but land cannot do it all. The report says waning food supplies could trigger more migration. It's 50 years to the day. Come together. The Beatles strutted their stuff across Abbey Road. These fans from Miami flew in so they could recreate that famous walk on the actual anniversary. Why? Why? Because if you're a Beatles fan, you have to. The Beatles make you happy, and they bring people together. It's a soundtrack to your life. But you hear every language spoken at Abbey Road. The Beatles were the first truly global pop stars, and they're still winning new fans today. Vicki Barker, CBS News at Abbey Road in London. The Dow is up 131 points. This is CBS News. Brought to you by the new Capital One Saver Card. Earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment, 2% at grocery stores, and 1% on all other purchases. What's in your wallet? At Indeed, we believe a resume is a great way to see an overview.